0: teacher friend i'm laurie and i'm melissa we are two literacy educators in baltimore we want the best for all kids and we know you do too our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum which meant a lot
1: of change for everyone laurie and i can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today
0: hi everyone welcome to melissa and laurie love literacy we are thrilled that you're here with us today we have a very special guest We have Kate Walsh. She is the president of National Council on Teacher Quality. She caught Melissa's attention uh, first, Mm -hmm. and then Melissa shared her article with me. But Melissa, I want you to share why you were so excited to send the article to me. And, um, one of the reasons why you were like, we have to have Kate on our podcast. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, um, Kate's short article was called getting at the root of the school to prison pipeline, which doesn't sound like it might be about literacy, but I think that's what made it so powerful to me is talking about, um, you know, not just, um, W- what's wrong with literacy instruction, but what happens to students if they are not getting the literacy instruction that they should be getting? Um, and I not feel it too much because that's what Kate's going to talk about today.
0: <laughs> so we have Kate with us. Kate, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yes. Um, so Kate, we, um, we wanted you to just do a brief bio, but I do want to point out we have a lot of Baltimore listeners and I believe you reside in Baltimore, Yes
2: i do i still live in baltimore though our office is located in dc but i do the commute every now and then nice. and um so i'm a, a pretty much a lifer at this point in baltimore <laughs> i've been here um about 35 38 years so oh, nice. wow. we're okay. right here i grew you. up <laughs> i grew up in indiana awesome
0: there you go. You moved on out east, right? <laughs> yeah,
2: <laughs> so, there, was, there was this man
0: involved. <laughs> <laughs> that seems to be the, the case. So Kate, tell us about yourself. Uh Tell us about your career and how you made it to be um, the president for National Council on Teacher Quality. We'd love to hear.
2: Uh, so um, I actually got into this uh, world uh, because it was my... Parents and grandparents' world, um, I come from generations of teachers. Um, and my mother actually started a school uh, out in South Bend, Indiana, because she was dissatisfied with the instruction that her kids were getting. There were seven girls in our family, and my oldest sisters were uh, not getting what she thought was a good quality education. So she just did what any normal person would do and started her own school. <laughs> And, um, and, uh, just education was always so important, but, um, what my mother really drilled into us was the importance of standards and, um, it just, I'm, she's now gone, but, I'm, there isn't a day I don't, that goes by where I'm not grateful to her for, for setting those lessons out for us on standards.
0: Can you tell us more about um, what standards they are?
2: Well, um, you know, she certainly, uh, was in, 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 regards to literacy, um, she loved books and, uh, loved high quality literature and she also believed very much in phonics. Um, and that was when phonics was actually taught in schools. Um, it was before we had ever heard of such a thing as phonemic awareness, but, um, um, You know, my mother believed so strongly in in, we weren't we weren't even allowed to read Nancy Drew. We were only allowed to read very um, highbrow children's literature, but it was all all (laughs) excellent. And, you know, it's funny. I mean, a lot of people would laugh at my mom for being such a snob. But um, I grew up with a love for just some. Many, many wonderful books that I treasure mm-hmm. to this day, and I'm always a little sad when um I run into people who can't name a book that they remember from being a child and they and so you know we she taught me a great love of literature, but she also recognized the importance of phonics in her school um we all got it, and um that was before phonemic awareness. Um, was a thing, but um, we did get those basics. Anyway, um, my mother imparted in me a deep, deep commitment to education. And whereas she poured all her energies into a school where her um, basically fairly well-privileged children, uh, certainly not wealthy, but privileged compared to a lot of kids, um, could thrive, um, I wanted to pour my energies into um, helping um, kids who are growing up in poverty um, get a similar uh love for education and for books and reading. And so that's been my sort of driving uh, force behind my own uh, my own commitment to education.
1: Excellent. And what is, what, can you describe the mission of the National Council on Teacher Quality and the work you do there?
2: Yeah, so um, it's funny. We're not, people sometimes get a little confused about what we do. I am not a teacher. Um, I'm a policy person, um, very much dependent on being surrounded by pe- people who have been teachers to keep me real. Uh, We're not as much a teacher organization as we are um, very much um, of the belief that um, institutions control the lives of teachers, and institutions like states and teacher preparation programs and colleges and universities, as well as school districts, have um, sometimes a very harmful impact on teachers, and um, sometimes they have a good impact, but they, they... They shape, they are why we might not get as many high quality individuals who enter the profession as we would like. They are why really great teachers sometimes leave the room. Um, Policy matters. And so we work very, very hard um, to persuade policymakers to do right by the teaching profession. That
0: sounds very exciting. when you're doing this, what do you, what do you persuade them to do? Like what kinds of things would you be topics would you be talking about in order to persuade them to make decisions that support teachers in this profession?
2: So what we're best known for is the, uh, well, I need to tell you a little story. Oh Um, yes. (laughs) uh, We love stories. (laughs) Yeah. So back in 1910, there's a guy named Abraham Flexner who was a school headmaster. And um, he was charged by the Carnegie Foundation to go out and rate the nation's medical schools. And why would they do that? It's because medical training in the United States was deplorable. I mean, they um, you could get into medical school medical school without a high school degree. You oh never God. operated on a body, live or dead. Um, you, all you did was learn medicine by studying some textbooks. Uh-huh. And it was in, um, in contrast to what they were doing in Europe, which was much more clinical. And so Carnegie asked Abraham Flexner to go around and um, assess the quality of um, medical training in the United States and there were 155, Um, so he visited every one of them over a period of three years, and um, he found only one worth its salt. But in the period shortly after um, that report being issued, um, you saw a dramatic um, change, transformation occurring in medical schools. So it's probably the most famous most famous report of the last century um, social, in social sciences, and every doctor's heard of it. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people over the years have said, look, um, the way we prepare teachers in the United States is really uh, mediocre, if not worse. And um, uh, But how could we do something like Flexner did um, with medical schools when there are, um, you know, there's 1,450 institutions in the United States that train teachers, and they mm-hmm. have a graduate level program, an undergraduate level program. There's actually 27,000 teacher preparation programs in the United States of one kind or another. Wow! Oh so, my <laughs> so it you know, it's really hard to figure out how to do that, and you couldn't have yeah. done. That. So we did it. Um, we we don't do twenty seven thousand programs, we uh, <laughs> but uh, we do do um, 90, uh, We do do most of the programs in the United States that prepare elementary and secondary teachers, and the most important thing we look at is the quality of their reading preparation of elementary teachers. Do they teach them how to teach reading using? scientifically based evidence and we've been doing this work since 2006 when we found in a sample of programs that there were only 17 percent that did it and then um we we have keep tracking that and we went national in 2013 and we we we're about to come out with new ratings at the end of january uh which um which um, repeat the trend that we've been seeing of mm-hmm. increased compliance um, with the science of reading. Um, so there are at least um, more and more programs are acknowledging that there is such a thing as reading science. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're—I don't—I can't say yet, and certainly not on this podcast, whether we've passed the 50% mark. <laughs> uh, um, so it's it's kind of remarkable given that the science has really been settled for th- three decades. And, um, you know, but uh, be that as, an, uh, as it may, um, we are determined to keep um, measuring and holding programs' feet to the fire on this. So what? how they prepare teachers to teach reading, you know, have friends and dis- I have seen teachers reduced to tears, and I'm sure you have as well, who finally learn, maybe after being in the classroom 10 or 15 years, what it is they were supposed to have been doing for the last Mm -hmm. all their years. And they said they feel so guilty. They feel so guilty for all those kids that went through their class and nobody told them ever how to teach reading. And um, so this is not on teachers at all. This is, we do this on the of teachers, this work. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Kate, what are you looking for in those programs? Like what elements need to be in them to say that they've met the mark?
2: Yeah. Well, what we do is pretty, uh, we collect the course materials. We read every single textbook that is, Read in a class, Um, so we have experts evaluate them on their adherence to the five pillars of scientifically based reading research. Um, So you're looking for you're not just looking for some readings on phonemic awareness. You're making we want to make sure that there's some assignments given to the teacher that where they'll have to demonstrate their understanding of phonemic awareness. We want to make sure there's you know some tests or quizzes on uh, the science. We want to make sure that um, there's lectures or class time dedicated to um, the science of reading. So it's a complicated process, but it's one that very well aligns with, um, you know, it correlates with uh, studies where they've actually sat in on classes. Um, If anything, we give schools the benefit of the doubt. Um, You know, you know, from when you were a kid or college student, you when you had a syllabus, you never covered the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> but um so if anything, we, we give more credit to programs than we should. Um and a lot of people, a lot of reading experts have told us we really need to amp up the difficulty of our standard that it, the, the bar is not is too low. And we're gonna be mm. looking at that issue in the next year mm-hmm. we're going to be assembling some folks to help us look at it again to make sure it's reflected of the most recent research and that the bar is set at a, an appropriate place where teachers can confidently know that they will leave that program knowing how to teach kids to read but then they've got this other problem and you know that's the curriculum that the school district hands them but um yeah yeah conversation We've,
0: yeah, absolutely. We've talked about the um, components of reading before, the pillars of reading. The mm-hmm. I know you named a couple, but I just want to name them all for our listeners. Just I feel like the more you name them, the better we all know them. But uh, phonemic awareness, phonics, fluency, vocabulary, and comprehension. And it sounds like the work that you're doing is falling in the the first uh, several categories. Um, Actually, all you, five. You'll land in all? Okay. Yeah, we look so,
2: for all five. You know, first okay. you want to make... Sure, kids it's what's we've learned more and more is how important phonemic awareness is. And if your readers don't know what that is, it's is do kids properly hear the sounds um that 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 we make? when we when we uh speak the written word, do we hear do we hear when we hear the word when we hear the, do we hear the or are we hearing buh? You know, mm-hmm. that's um, a necessary skill before we get to phonics. And yep. then um, every kid um, needs to be able to read fluently without having to think about it, or else they can't think about the meaning of the text. Yep. Yep. They can't be sitting there going, how do I sound out this word? Uh, yep. Have to be able to do it fluently. And then vocabulary and comprehension, I think, um, Comprehension is probably the most poorly taught skill of all because um, it's not a skill. But, um, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, so anyway, that is, it, it, yeah, it, it's mm-hmm. all. But, you know, none of that, uh, one of the things that we haven't gotten into is oral language as much as we should, because mm-hmm. I don't think teachers understand the importance of reading out loud to their kids. They think it's a fun activity. They don't mm-hmm that that's an opportunity for kids to learn new words that they wouldn't be able to learn if they were trying to read it themselves.
0: Yeah. I saw this beautiful graphic once that, and I wish I could find it. It was in like a PowerPoint presentation and I would have to dig it out like three old laptops ago. Um, <laughs> But I can picture it in my head, and it 's this beautiful arc, and it describes where oral comprehension meets silent reading comprehension mm-hmm. and um, i'm if I'm remembering correctly, it was at about sixth grade um, is where that levels out and meets
2: yeah it 's um, a lot of fun
0: yeah, and just the benefit of that, and it's you know not just reading for fun but but reading out loud for a purpose that oral comprehension is very important all the way up through uh, sixth grade and Really important too if you have students who are, you know, older and who are struggling readers. Um, it's a very helpful tool.
2: Yeah, don't you think a lot of teachers give up on it as soon as their kids know how to read? They don't realize yeah. that. Um, first of all, we all love stories, uh-huh. all, <laughs> you know. But um, in addition to just the love of it, it's how you build vocabulary most effectively. Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, we talk a lot about knowledge building on our podcast and um absolutely we agree with you that comprehension is not a, an isolated skill by any means <laughs> yeah well, if you
2: haven't if you haven't had natalie wexler on your show talking about the knowledge gap and how you really build comprehension you should you should do that she's she's oh. a, she's a journalist who's written a book on this
0: yeah we, ha- we have we are super fans Kate. We yeah have. she's great we are, and, um, and and to to push it even further, we will we are having Emily Hanford on our podcast. Um, we to t- to really extend the conversation about what you're speaking of. So we're excited to to bring light to the science of reading in lots of different ways through this podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk about a quote, if it's okay, um, that you had that you shared. Um, or that was in your article. Um, I'm trying to find it because it's, let's see. Um, Well, you know what, not the quote, the NAEP report, the NAEP results, um, because I want to just bring it to light for our listeners. Um, It says the NAEP results show that Black and Hispanic students are more likely to struggle with reading. The percent of eighth grade students scoring below basic by race and ethnicity as of 2019, um, Black students scored 47% below basic, and Hispanic students scored 38% below basic, while white students scored 19% um, below basic. Um, do you want to share your reactions to that? Because I think that uh, I, I really thought what you said in the article was very important.
2: Yeah, well, let me tell you, um, you know, I've been looking at similar numbers, you know, I'm sort of at the uh, twilight of my uh, professional career. Yeah. And um, I've been looking at those same kinds of numbers for decades and mm-hmm. um, always, always have been upset, upset by them. And it's what drives me to um, seek to improve educational systems. Um, but um, it wasn't until um I was given the opportunity along with the rest of my staff and board to go to Montgomery, Alabama, to go to the legacy museum. And, Mm um, if any of your listeners or you haven't gone, it's I I almost think it should be a mandatory field trip for every American. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of Americans in the Trump administration. I'd like to take right now, (laughs) But, but, um, I um uh, what what they've done down there, it's not a traditional museum, um, but um, it it what it, it walks you through in a way that has a quiet but horrifying power, um, how we as a nation have uh, have not really cast off the mantle of deep, deep institutional racism. And you start with slavery and uh, and it's probably I'd say slavery in some ways was the least powerful story it told because it's a story that we know the best, and it's a story that we're m- the most comfortable telling and talking about and doing movies about because it's in the past, and of course we don't believe in slavery anymore. And so we haven't had slavery since 1864. And geez, weren't we horrible human beings to have ever thought that that was okay to do? And mm-hmm. so some of the stories that the museum tells you is, you know, it, it, they're horrible, horrible, horrible. What, um, what was perpetuated on um, Africans but, um, and their descendants. But, um, but then the museum, um, what it does is it links... Slavery um, to the Jim Crow era, and I was not—you know—I went to this museum thinking I'm a very enlightened person. I've dedicated my life to helping um, kids who um, are predominantly minority. And what did I need educating for? And I'll just go and it'll be—it'll be a, be a moving mm-hmm. experience, but I won't learn anything. Well. Mm-hmm. Boy, was I wrong. And um, you go through the Jim Crow era, which I didn't realize was a response to the end of slavery. So it was just another way that we were able to um, suppress uh, black people. And um, the lynchings that occurred over a period of seven decades— were simply another manifestation of keeping black men, black men, women, and children. Children were lynched as well for doing absolutely nothing. Um, so there's a tribute to them in another place in Montgomery that um, I can't remember the formal name of it, but it, it's devastating. It is and so you didn't realize how institutional the Jim Crow era was, nor did you realize, or I didn't, how long it was. And then um, in the, um, when the rise of the civil rights movement really put a stop to lynchings, um, much to the anger of a lot of folks, um, we, we instead found ways to deal with um, black and, and ultimately brown people as well by just putting them in jail. And so you go from slavery to Jim Crow to mass incarceration. And the museum has, um, uh, it has some reference to education. It does. But it's more about the fact that we segregated. You know, they're, they're in, you know, I think it, there was even a quote up there in, from Alabama where they um, still have in their constitution there, um, that schools had the right to be um, segregated. Um, so it's it's pretty remarkable. And but um, what was absent, and that's what I wrote about. What was absent, in my view, was that we continue not to teach Black and Brown kids how to read, and that if the NAEP results had looked a little bit differently. If the NAEP results or on all the other different assessments we look at every few years and throw up our hands and say, isn't this terrible? If that were about white kids, schools would have changed what they did a long time ago. And Mm. schools wouldn't have tolerated having teachers coming out of teacher preparation programs who had been deprived of the tools they need to teach all kids. So, I put this theory on the table. Um, I'm not positive I'm right, but the more I talk about it, the more it feels right, because I can't come up with another explanation for how we as a society are willing to tolerate half of black and brown kids not reading. Mm -hmm. Yep. So I don't know. I haven't had anybody actually push back on that. Um, but, you know, maybe they do behind my back, but it doesn't make sense to me. Why would a school district, um, reject what we know is scientifically, I mean, <clears throat> you know, I, 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 think about when new technologies come around or, uh, new ways of doing things, it's always hard for people to adapt. It's always hard for people to change, but we're sort of past that point. Here and it's still it's still a struggle to get school districts to recognize that they need to give teachers the data tools. You know, I was teachers are given data tools that tell them that they're being successful with teaching their kids to read Mm -hmm. Um, using these Fontes and Pinnell things, uh, where you know they all hear that they're eighty percent successful, so they think they did a great job. So the kid goes on to the next grade and, you know, it's just, it's remarkable.
0: It's a cycle. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Melissa.
1: I was just going to say, I did want to pull a quote from the article just to underscore what you were saying. The question that you asked was, is the reason Americans tolerate unnecessarily high rates of kids who never learn how to read yet another manifestation of institutionalized racism? And I, that's, It captures everything you just said, but I just think it's super powerful. Yeah. Um,
2: Yeah, I I just, I'm left with no other recourse at this point. I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't, I can't come up with another reason why this persists when we could get, I don't think what teachers realize is they should be able to teach 90 to 95% of the kids in their class how to read no matter what school they're in, no matter where they are that that the only, that it's a very small number of seriously, um, you know, brain confused kids that can't learn how to read if these methods are taught.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so thinking about those systematic foundational skills that we know all kids benefit from, research has shown us that. I wonder why, to piggyback on what you said, not only do districts and schools not have some sort of curriculum to address this, that is high quality foundational skills programming, but why when they do that, it doesn't get taught. Um, you know, I think that it's really important that if you have curriculum that you use it. Um, and that, you know, so I, I wonder that, and I don't know that that's a question we can answer today, but you know, or, or why it doesn't get taught, um, as intended, I guess I should say. Oh, I know why. Yeah. Because, okay, go for it.
2: <laughs> no, it's because the teacher doesn't understand the foundational, doesn't, ha- hasn't been given the foundational knowledge that allows them to know how to teach it. So, mm-hmm. you know, you can, a doctor can have, you know, the best surgical tools in the world. But if he, not, if he doesn't understand why you use something here and not there and how you use it, if you don't, you can't make educated decisions. And as you know, as teachers, that you have to make snap decisions, boom, 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 boom. boom. You don't have time to sit there and, you know, reflect on which one might work. And so if you don't have that foundational knowledge that you should have gotten in your pre-service education, you're going to make mistakes. through no fault of your own. So I've heard people who have put in, um, wit and wisdom, which is a fabulous new reading curriculum. And that's that's what we have in Baltimore. (laughs) Okay. And, um, and they've messed it up. They don't teach in with fidelity. Why is that? Because they don't understand the principles and the theories that undergird that curriculum. So they're going to skip something they should never have skipped. They're going to change something they should have never have changed. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean, you know, it, 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 if you're going to be treat someone as a professional, they have to have the professional knowledge on which to make judgments. It can't mm-hmm. be a guessing game. It can't be what they feel like doing at that moment.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I I think it speaks to two things because I think what your work is really important in getting at the root of the issue like almost um while teachers are at that pre-service level but I I'm thinking of it like a two-lane road where um, we have a, a ton of teachers, and probably the majority of teachers teaching right now. So there, there needs to be some in-service. Um, ah, yes, you know, obviously that happens. Um, and I, you know, in terms of professional development, in terms of research, and I know in the Wit and Wisdom PDs, Melissa and I have both um, been in them, and they use a lot of research to support that and to, you know, treat teachers like trusted colleagues, so that. Um, they are gaining that knowledge and and bit by bit in that knowledge gain, then they're understanding the design and the whys behind it as adult learners. Um,
2: Yeah. I mean, you, first of all, um, until you have to practice what you learn, we know cognitively it's very hard for us to absorb it and own it, you know? Mm -hmm in yeah. law you know that you go to law school then you then you have to practice law and you're like you know is there any connection between what you practice and what you learn there is but i think that you are only putting in some building blocks in the course mm-hmm. of your professional education and those foundational building blocks are necessary but they're never going to replace that sort of day to day wrestling. Here I am trying to put in this new curriculum that my school has handed me. Now, what do I need to do? I mean, it's it's there's no so you absolutely have to have good PD. Yes, schools which right. schools districts we know are really good at giving great PD, right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, we so we on on our podcast we believe that. Um, it should be curriculum focused and, and by yes. the experts.
2: <laughs> yes, absolutely.
0: Um, yeah, I, Melissa and I always like to joke around about the PDs that we were in, um, you know, well before, you know, when we were teachers and, oh, learning about a pedagogy and, and it's just really hard to apply if you don't have a curriculum to apply it to. And um, when you have a curriculum, the pedagogy is embedded within. So your PD really becomes that much richer. Yeah. um, Especially when it's delivered by an expert in it. Yeah. Yeah. And
1: if you look at, I mean, district PD, even, uh, you know, the, even if it's an amazing actual professional development session, we're talking about four to five days per year that teachers would get that versus, you know, talking about their teacher preparation, four plus years Mm -hmm. of preparing. Um, So yeah, there's a big, Big gap between what you can really do in that PD time. Mm
2: -hmm. There's not been a whole lot of studies that have found any PD to work, but Mm -hmm. the studies that I have come across that have shown PD to actually produce learning gains in kids are um, curriculum-based, where teachers are wrestling with specific concrete problems within the curriculum that they're teaching and how kids are responding to it and teachers working with other teachers that, you know, but you can't just be a sit and bench session, um, where you're just talking, you know, whining about kids. You've got to have something constructive to talk about.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We agree with that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and I, I want to circle back to something in the very beginning um, in terms of that teacher training and how we were discussing that um, te- you had mentioned that teachers felt so badly um, when mm-hmm. they realized that they weren't doing what they needed to do. At some point in their career, um, they didn't know the science of reading and they had just learned it. Um, Melissa and I uh, read David Lieben's Know Better, Do Better, and so we... Um, we we try to use that in our practice. Um, you know, I, I taught second grade and back in the day, and I had used the three queuing system because I didn't know any better, and I, I feel I felt badly. But then I, I learned and I did better. So, um, you know, I think <laughs> it, it, at one point we're we're teaching the folks in college um, those pre-service teachers the right way um, to the best that we can at this point, and we're we're hoping that it catches on. And and your work is really important in that. But, um, those in the field can use that to, to make themselves know that, you know, once they learn it, it's important that they do it and do better. Um, it's, it's just, it's a hard pill to swallow, I think, to be a teacher and to, to learn it later in your career.
2: Oh, it's, 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 it's just tragic. Yeah. You know, I, I, I mean, you, a teacher, no one is more acutely aware than a teacher that their kids only get one chance at that grade, you know, mm-hmm. that they can say, oh, I'll do better next year. I mean, this happens with first year teachers all the time. They, they, you know, they they feel terrible about their first year of teaching. And um, what, what I have struggled with um more than anything is that we have a lot of knowledge that ought to be part of teacher prep and it's not just about reading it's about math it's about classroom management it's about um ha- ha- what you need to do to improve student learning it's it's about the kind of uh, what makes a good student teaching experience we have all that knowledge and why anyone thinks That it shouldn't be fundamental to every single teacher prep program in the country is is something I can't quite get my hands around. But there's a real ideological resistance on the Mm -hmm. part of many teacher prep programs that says, we don't train teachers, we create teachers, we mold them, we shape them. So... Mm We've looked at thousands and thousands of reading courses and what the most popular way of teaching, of of preparing teachers to teach reading is to um, have them develop their own philosophy because Mm -hmm. the reason they do that is they think every child is unique and every classroom is unique. And Mm -hmm. if they teach you an, a a single approach that that will cause you to be prejudicial and, um, and, and, and not take into consideration the uniqueness of each class, which is if we applied that same thinking to medicine or any other profession, you know, like a hairdresser, even Mm. everyone has different hair. But I guarantee you, um, hairdressers learn how to work on different kinds of hair. But um, there are a certain, you know, all involve scissors. (laughs) Right? All all, all involve scissors. So, um, yes, we're unique, but there are some common rules. And the, the, the other thing, and you can stop me if I'm rattling on too much, is I don't I just don't understand um, the idea that there is no one way to teach reading. We do know there is one way, only one <laughs> way, that gets us to 90, 90 95% of all kids reading.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: That 40% of kids will learn that way or they'll learn any way you put in front of them. Right. It doesn't matter. But they're not hurt by the fact that the school is only teaching one way. You know, it they don't, they're not bored. That's not a problem. It's not, you know, it's not doing them an injustice. So if you're not going to hurt those kids and they will learn how to read themselves, why not teach one way to all kids?
1: Yep. Kate, do you have any insight into why teacher prep programs stick with that ideology and.
2: Yeah. And, and boy, have I learned this the hard way. um uh, they um, are what what we make the mistake. Those of us who spend all our time in K-, K twelve, we don't appreciate how you advance in higher ed. So in higher ed, you get promoted, you get recognized for thinking great new ideas. Um, so they really push back if if they're seen as trainers. Like, mm. well, you train dogs, you don't train teachers. And I'll say, well, you train doctors, you mm. know. Yeah. <laughs> we, we use that I word for doctors. I prefer a
0: doctor and not be creative.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, so there's a real, but it, but they say that because, and I'm speaking in general terms. I mean, uh, they, you'd have to have them on to defend themselves, but um, but they say that because, um, they don't, they want to be seen. Uh, they, they, teacher educators have always been sort of the stepchildren, to use an old fashioned term, um, stepchildren of academia. Um, they've always struggled to achieve parity with their peers in the College of Liberal Arts. They've always felt insecure. And, and there's good reason for that because liberal arts has always held their nose, uh, you know. Uh, just always look down on teacher educators. They don't think that they um, teach anything real. They think they're sort of making it up. Mm. Well, what's tragic about this, if teacher educators would start to teach this whole body of science I alluded to to a few minutes ago in classroom management, I mean, there's very firm theory and practice in learning sciences, very firm. If, If they would do all these things, I think that they would raise their status with their peers in the College of Arts and Sciences because they would be teaching very real evidence-based work. But instead, they, the, 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 the prevailing wisdom in many ed schools is, um, I get to teach what I believe and it's called academic freedom. I'd argue that's, it's academic freedom abused. It's it's not how academic freedom is supposed to work.
0: Yeah. Kate, I'm going to interject a story that really supports what you just said. Um, so I had been working in a school and the school partnered with a local university to have interns, um, student teacher interns. And the I was observing um, a student teacher teaching a A lesson and and the school had, the district had adopted a high quality curriculum. Um, And so the teacher was like kind of doing what I would refer to as cherry picking, Um, choosing some parts of the lesson to use, not using others, using the lesson text, um, but not using it in the way that it was intended in the lesson. And then uh, the students were asked to do and a, a task, and um, the teacher had rewritten the task. And so it was a grade six classroom. And when the teacher rewrote the task, it was, if I, if I wanted to align a standard to it, it was um, basically meeting like a third grade standard. And so in the debrief, you know, I was asking questions and like, what happened? You know, why, why did we, why did you make the decisions that you made? Can you tell me about it? And uh, the teacher shared that in the teacher prep program that she was in, she had been asked to create a two-week unit plan, which meant completely overhauling the curriculum mm. and rewriting it. Um, and so one of the things that that I've talked about before and, and Melissa has talked about before on this podcast is um, teachers really shifting that mindset from being creators to being implementers. Um, and that that's a really difficult mindset shift and but if we could get, you know, universities and colleges and the, the prep programs to embrace that, how much easier it would be uh, to do to do so and um, help shift that narrative to, you know, we are implementing high quality curriculum and and how we can take that and really customize for our students as we get really good at teaching. Right. It's,
2: it's what you do with well, first year teachers, for sure. You say, you know, a first-year teacher should never feel comfortable deviating. Um, Mm -hmm. But as you grow in professional wisdom, you're going to know what you can alter. But imagine how much easier life would be as a first-year teacher is if you didn't feel like every day you were coming in and writing, um, you know, Romeo and Juliet or... Know, creating the next mm-hmm. great work of art. I mean, you just—you know—it's—it's it, it, too—it's why, first, year teachers go home and throw up every night and have mm-hmm. eyebrows and headache. I mean, we're asked way too much of them. I've been there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Melissa and I have talked
1: about it a lot. <laughs>
0: Melissa, you, you did that your oh, first yeah, couple of years, sure. yes? You were, you told the story about <laughs> I had nothing so. <laughs> my first couple of years. So
1: I, I was creating everything from scratch and it probably was not great.
2: No, and you probably, I don't know, <laughs> f- were you, were you looking at, I mean, teachers' primary source of curriculum is Pinterest. Which is hardly, you know, that didn't
1: even exist then. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I didn't. I didn't even have that. We are are older
0: than (laughs) (laughs) teachers. Pay teachers and Pinterest were were not even on the radar. (laughs) This is not. This
2: is not a criticism of teachers. These are teachers who are, casting about, trying to find something they can do in their next day's lesson because. School districts have let them down. Yep. Yeah.
1: Yep. Well, Kate, you've given us a lot <laughs> to think about today. Um, <laughs> would you wrap us up with a piece of advice that you would give to, I guess, maybe teachers or maybe some teacher prep programs? I don't know. Whoever you you feel like you might have some advice for.
2: Yeah, um, I think it's uh, you know my advice would be primarily to teachers that. Um, that you you can um, you can get better, and there are now um, ways to get better. Some school districts are doing what's called letters training, L E T R S. Yep. Uh, there's also mm-hmm. an online thing that a, a, a letters trainer uh, design called Top Ten, Top Ten Reading Teacher, Top Ten Something about Reading. I can't even think of it.
1: We'll to
2: find that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's that was developed by a woman named Deb Glazer, who is actually um, she reviews the line share of our textbooks um, that we review when we're looking at a reading course. Um, and she's amazing. And, you know, you can do you can learn this online, um, which is not going to you know, solve all your problems, but. There is enough out there and, and, and to, you know, I was just reading in a newspaper story this morning how, um, you know, one of the biggest uh, reading science deniers, which I like to call them, uh, <laughs> was, you know, thought that the, there was a bill on dyslexia introduced into the Tennessee legislature. And he said, you know, those people should be shocked. Um, and I'm thinking really uh, this is Richard Allington who's probably the foremost advocate of what is called whole language um, but mm-hmm. balanced literacy and whole language aren't are not really approaches to teaching anything um, they're not there's no real science behind them they're just a they're just a um, they're simply a a belief, but they're not really a reading approach. Mm -hmm. Um, If you find yourself covering words up in your classroom so that kids can guess what the words are by clues you've given them, you are definitely being given the wrong materials. And um, Mm -hmm. so you need to start raising questions, both um, for your own professional knowledge, but also you need to raise questions with your school and school district. And that's not always easy for teachers. You know, it's, it's hard to go up against the man, but um, it's, uh, it's the only way we're going to get out of this mess. And I do think, I, actually, let me bring, bring me back to the central point. I do think if we raise the truth of what's behind this, that we are being unfair to kids who are black and brown, who are more like, and the only reason black and brown kids aren't learning how to read is they're more likely to grow up in poverty. And they're more likely not to have had those books in their homes. So um, yeah. it's not something ingrained in being black or brown. It's simply that they're more likely to be poor. So, um, but I do think if we call school districts on this and say, if I don't learn the right way to teach reading, I am contributing to a decades, centuries um, pattern in the United States of institutionalized racism and i'm not going to be a part of that
0: Mm. yeah that is an interesting way to think of it and i think a way that will impact many of our listeners so thank you for that really very important advice great
2: well it's my pleasure to be with you guys today
0: yeah thank you so much kate yeah thank you so much (laughs) we've loved listening and learning
2: with you so thank you